1: Hi, this is Trisha Keffer from sunny Key Largo, Florida. I hope you enjoy the following interview. And if you have any ideas for books, please drop me a line on my website at plantspeoplelove.com. This is Trisha Keffer with New Books in Architecture, with a special mini-series in landscape architecture. And today, the book is Trains, Buses, People, published by Island Press in 2018. Our author is Christopher Spieler. He is a vice president and director of planning at Hewlett-Zollers and a lecturer in architecture and engineering at Rice University. He was a member of the board of directors of the Houston Metro from 2010 to 2018, where he oversaw a complete redesign of the bus network that resulted in Houston being one of the few U.S. cities that are increasing transient ridership. Hi, Christoph. Welcome to the show.
0: Happy to be here.
1: So tell us uh, a little bit about yourself.
0: So I'm an engineer and an urban planner. I I live in Houston, Um, do consulting work on on planning. I'm a former board member of the Houston Transit Agency, which I did for about eight years. Um, And I also teach transportation at Rice University.
1: Um, What is your educational background?
0: BS and MS in civil engineering. Um, But I like to describe myself as... An engineer who enjoys hanging out with architects, um, Ah. which has pretty much been my career description. So I have always liked working on the place where different disciplines come together. And urban planning is definitely one of those places.
1: And landscape architects, too. Oh,
0: absolutely.
1: Um, So tell us, um, what was your motivation for writing this book?
0: So... I was in Houston. I was part of a redesign of our entire bus network, which has actually led to a much better network. It's led to ridership going up. It was an amazing experience to be in the middle of. Um, But in that conversation and in lots of other conversations, I got a little frustrated about what we were talking about when it came to transit and what we weren't. And I felt like we were having a lot of the wrong kinds of conversations. I was in far too many conversations about our trains better or are our buses better um, and not nearly enough conversations about what actually makes transit work well. Um, and I also got frustrated when I read about transit when I went to transit conferences. It felt like there wasn't enough discussion of what we do well in transit and what we don't. Um, there was a lot of sort of conversation that building a rail transit line is a success. Um, you know, the story ends with we got the project open. Um, whereas I was looking at that and saying building a successful line that carries a lot of people is a success. And if you look around the United States, we've built lots of lines that aren't that successful. Um, so I thought it was important to have a better conversation about the basics of what makes transit work, and to have an honest conversation about what are we doing well and what aren't we. And I'd also realized over 15 years that there wasn't a good go-to source for really comparing different transit systems in the United States. Um, So I thought I could do both of those. Do a book which compared every metro area in the United States that has rail or BRT maps them at the same scale, provides stats for all of those systems, describes those systems. Um, but that also talks about what makes good transit um, and has a really honest discussion about which which metro areas are succeeding, how are they succeeding, why are they succeeding, which ones aren't, and why did they make the decisions that they did?
1: Yes, I was really fascinated by this book because um, two things. Ironically, um, my first uh graduate studio was about uh transient and i was uh for rail um and the same issues you were bringing up is bus better or is rail better um etc kept coming up and um in in my experience i i was lucky to be a, a temporary local in paris and i just fell in love with the rail and because um like you said in your book it was it got me everywhere i needed to go where i was going and it had uh, frequency, etc., And it was uh, a great system. Uh, so I saw this book. I was like, the research in it is is really uh, incredible. Thank you so much.
0: It, it, there's a lot of work in this thing. Um, if you go back to the oldest maps in the book, I, made, I started making them somewhere around 2003. Um, and I took every photo in the book, which also means I had to travel to all of these places, which <laughs> oh, that, that's years of of taking every opportunity I could and then planning some trips to hit the areas I hadn't been to.
1: Yes, it's quite extensive. I I wish I'd had this book uh, a couple years ago. Um, So my first question is, so how do you do it? Um, In your uh, chapter one, drawing the line, how do we make good transient?
0: Well, I think it's, it's actually really simple. We basically find places where lots of people are and we draw long straight lines through them connecting major centers of activity and serving significant population density. And then we make that service frequent and we make that service reliable and we make that service reasonably fast. Um, and and one of the key ideas in the book is that's not actually hard. Um, transit planning is actually not hard at all. Um, and I, whenever I give a talk, I like saying that That basically every member of the audience could design a better rail transit system than something like half the rail transit systems in the United States. Um, The hard part isn't identifying the right corridor. The hard part is actually doing it. Um, And I think a, a lot of the reason why often we don't do it, I have a graphic in the book of how many transit lines in the United States actually dodge density rather than going to it. You know, it's a really simple rule. You want to go to where people are. And then you look at actual transit lines and it's amazing how many of them seem to actually go to great efforts to avoid places where people are. Um, And the reason for that is we're not clear on our goals when we build these projects. We don't have good conversations about them. We let the projects be sort of taken off track, pardon the pun, by, um, mm-hmm. by politics. It, and that's part of what this book is trying to address.
1: Um, so how do you gather support to um, implement a transient system?
0: It's hard. I mean, basically, like anything, like any major project, you have to get a lot of different constituencies together. Um, and And that's one of the... One of the interesting things I talk about in the book is sort of what are the constituencies that are for transit and what are the constituencies that are against transit? And it's interesting because sometimes those, those constituencies don't necessarily work in their own interests, um, and you get these sort of weird back-and-forth pushes Um, I I think a really common one that comes up in a lot of urbanism is there's still a lot of environmentalists who are concerned that green living means living in the leafy countryside. Um, And you will actually see people pushing for these very far-reaching transit systems uh, extending out into the suburbs and exurbs from a sort of environmental perspective. Um, when, When you look at it, those are... Those are systems that are likely to cause more sprawl, destroy more habitat, that will not do nearly as much for the planet as if we build a subway line through a dense urban place. Um, so there's 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 all these tug of wars. There's these trying to build alliances, and there's also a lot of local issues on the ground. If I am building a line down this street, will it affect parking? Will it affect access to a business? What will the construction period be like? Um, and we see rail lines really shaped by that kind of, I don't want this in my neighborhood. I don't want to lose my parking. I don't want, I don't want to see that kind of change. Um, and, and one of the things I say a lot is that if you design a rail transit line and nobody is against it, it's probably a sign that's a bad project. Because if you want to do transit well, you have to, you have to put it in places where it gets in the way. Um, because if you don't, those are the places where people are trying to go. Transit wants to go in crowded places. Transit doesn't want to go in empty places.
1: Yes, I noticed that in your book that if nobody protests it, that's not a good sign. Uh, that's kind of ironic.
0: <laughs> it is. It is. And, 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 and it sort of goes against reflexively the way politicians tend to think. Um, you know, it's a very natural instinct for politicians to avoid controversy. And avoiding controversy is actually a path towards building an effective transit.
1: So the more conflict, the better.
0: Well, I mean, and, and to be clear about this, it's not like we should be courting conflict. Um <laughs> and a lot of the a lot of the objections that come up are real. Like mm-hmm. we're talking about Whenever we are talking about transit, we're talking about things which profoundly impact people's everyday lives. And we always have to take that seriously when we're thinking about it. I mean, on the positive side, it means if we build good transit, we can make tens of thousands of people's lives better on an everyday basis. That's amazing. Um, But it also means that that same project can negatively impact tens of thousands of people. And that means you got to get a lot of little design decisions Right. And that means working with neighborhoods. That means understanding what the needs are of the people who are next to the project. Um, So absolutely, we have to work with everybody who's affected. We have to take neighborhoods seriously. Um, And that's part of making better transit. I talk a lot in the book about walkability, for example. A lot of what makes transit succeed is very small-scale urban design. Um, And that's often the kind of thing where you really have to understand the neighborhood well to get it right. But ultimately you are trying to build transit in places where it affects people. And if you are afraid of any opposition, afraid of any controversy, you're not going to get that done.
1: Yeah, that's true. Because uh, like you said, if it's just sprawl, I've seen uh, transits. It's like, uh, it doesn't go, like you said in your book, where I need to go.
0: Yeah. No. and, And that's actually a really common problem too is this tendency to want to pick um, paths that seem easy or logical, like there's a lot of people whose first instinct is to build transit down the middle of a freeway. Um, And there's a lot of problems with that. The first one is that where the transit needs to go is not the path that the traffic is taking. It's the destinations on both ends. It's not like that train is like a vacuum cleaner and you put it in the middle of the freeway and it just vacuums up those cars. You need to think about... Where is that car going from and where is it going to? And that's where transit needs to go. Um, The second problem is if you put transit in the middle of a freeway, every transit stop creates a quarter mile, half mile walkable radius. Um, And if you are in the middle of a freeway, half or more of that quarter mile radius is pavement, is freeway, is not a useful transit destination. So you've just cut the utility of that station in half by putting it in the middle of a freeway. And so that freeway looks like a really easy path, but it's not a good place for transit. Um, And the same often goes for things like abandoned freight rail lines, which again, they're an easy path, but they're often surrounded by warehouses and not by neighborhoods and homes um, and retail and all the other destinations that you want. So you end up bypassing your actual destinations because you picked what seemed like an easy or what felt like a logical route.
1: Oh, I see. Yes, that that's true, because our first thing is just, you know, take out, you know, or some controversy is, you know, cars versus rail. And um, you're saying it doesn't necessarily really need to go down that street.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it's it's it transit is about where you put the stations. That is the first thing that matters most. It's that idea that every one of those stops is that quarter or half mile radius of access. And, and one of the things I do in the book is I map out that access for all of those cities. I look at where is their frequent transit service, where is their frequent rail service, which means every 15 minutes or better, 7 a.m. to 6 p.m., and look at that footprint. Um, that is the zone of access you're creating. That's the place where you can travel on transit conveniently. And look at how well that matches up to cities, Look at how well that matches up to population density. In some places, it matches up really well. Um, Honolulu, for example, is a relatively small city with really high transit ridership. And a big part of the reason for that is it has a dense corridor with the ocean on one side and the mountains on the other. And the transit system does a really good job of serving that well. Um, But it's amazing how many cities there are where that transit network and the population jobs don't match up very well at all. and that, if we start thinking that way, we can make better transit.
1: Well, that's so interesting. I, you're jumping in. I was going to talk about Hawaii because actually I'm from there. And I didn't realize that uh, they had started planning that back in the 60s. Yeah,
0: it, it's one of the things that's interesting about rail is a lot of cities have been at this kind of thinking for a very long time. Um, and, and it's also notable when you look at the history of rail plans that the same corridors tend to surface again and again. That if somebody's building something now, it's not at all unusual for that to have been in the 60s or 70s or 80s for them to have been planning the same corridor. And that's because that's probably a corridor that makes sense. Um, but it could take a long time to get these systems built, which is part of the reason I think that it's also important to think about rail plus bus as one network um, that we do, I talk about in the book, how we have this tendency to, to think about rail lines as standalone things when in reality they function as part of a much larger connected bus and rail network. And I think that's something else that a lot of cities really don't take full advantage of.
1: Um, yes. Cause you did note in the book that it's, uh, pick, um, what was it? Uh, a trans, just transportation, and not uh, and try not to get into, you know, which one is going it, to be best first.
0: One of the worst things we do is we have discussions with statements like "this city needs light rail," mm-hmm. um, which to me doesn't make sense as a statement. Um, you know, it's it's not like there is light rail somewhere in this city is a thing that makes anything useful. Um, what makes sense as a statement to me is, say, we have this corridor connecting A, B, and C, and what we need here is we need a frequent, reliable, fast transit connection between these points, and we think it's going to have this level of ridership, and then you take that and you look at what technology would best do that. That, to me, is is the way to think about these things. Um and I, I give the one example is the Cincinnati streetcar, um, which started as a really logical transit project. There were basically a line of major centers to connect together, a total of five places. And they realized this is a really good transit corridor. You draw one straight line, you connect these things together, and that would be really useful, really high ridership transit. And so their first decision was we will connect this corridor. And then their second decision was we will use a streetcar for this. Um, But along the way they got distracted and rather than thinking of it as a this is a project to connect these five places, they started thinking of it as this is a project to build a streetcar in Cincinnati. And that mattered because they ended up not getting the funding they wanted, they had a hostile state government, all these setbacks, which meant they couldn't build as much of a project as they had planned. And in the end, they built a streetcar line that connected one out of five places together. They completely lost the original thread of what they were trying to accomplish. And I think that's because they, in their minds, had changed the definition of success. The definition of success wasn't connect these five places. The definition of success became build a streetcar. And they did build a streetcar. And it turns out to be a really low ridership streetcar because it doesn't actually make a particularly useful connection.
1: 'Cause it doesn't get people to where they need to go.
0: No. No. And 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 it's amazing how much when you look at media coverage of transit, when you look at discussion of transit in general, we are talking about modes, not about connections, not about service.
1: So yes, I noticed in your book that you talked you started with diagramming where the people are.
0: Yes. No, I mean that's what it's yeah. all about.
1: Mm-hmm. And, uh, and connecting them to where they need uh, their places. Um, so I, I, I like history, so I will just I would like to go into a little bit of that. What is the history of transit in the United States, and how did we get here?
0: That's really interesting, actually, because um, through the, uh, the first phase of transit in the United States, transit was privately operated. So if you look at the United States in the 1920s, more or less – Every U.S. city had some kind of streetcar system, not just big ones, but also small ones, which basically served the role that most bus networks do today. And those were generally operated by private companies under franchise that made money by charging fares. Um, In many cases, also made money by real estate so that you would have a company build a new amusement park at the edge of town so that everybody would pay the streetcar fare to go to the amusement (laughs) park or... um, That you would have streetcar companies work together with developers, that you build a new neighborhood that has a new streetcar line right through the middle of it, which helps sell those houses. Um, And then the big change that happened was the car came along. And the big difference between the car and the streetcar is we subsidize the car heavily. We still do. I mean, if you look at, there's really no form of transportation that is as heavily subsidized in the United States as automobiles are, the gas tax doesn't come close to covering the infrastructure we build. And we use property taxes to build this massive local roadway infrastructure that makes all of this possible. And we then do land use zoning and development regulations that basically require every private property owner to provide parking spaces. Um, And this was compared to streetcar companies, which in many cases were actually expected to pave the streets that they ran down, which had limits on how much fare they could charge. And that obviously didn't work out well for the streetcars. And and the transit industry started losing ridership and losing money. And the reaction to that um, was government takeover. But it was a really interesting kind of motivation for government takeover because two things were happening simultaneously. One is you saw all of these old transit systems fade away, fall apart. And at the same time, we started realizing that cars came with traffic congestion. So by the 1970s, congestion was a major issue and people realized that building more freeways wasn't enough. And so, so that brought the idea of transit to the forefront again, and people started planning new rail systems. And across the United States, transit agencies were created with a dual purpose. One was rescue, revitalize these existing transit systems, um, which at that point were serving often fairly low-income populations because the more affluent riders all had gotten cars. Um, And at the same time build sort of shiny new transit to get people out of their cars. And I think that dual mandate is still a very basic part of how transit works in the United States, because I think a lot of transit agencies see those as two different things. A lot of transit agencies think of themselves as we are operating one system for what they think of as transit dependent riders which in many cases translates to a bus system. And we are building another system which is designed to get people out of their cars. Um, and I think that thinking has its historical roots in how those transit agencies were created in the first place. And I think it's actually problematic. I think the whole idea of transit-dependent riders is problematic because um, it's really a spectrum that that if you think about... Um, this idea of some people have a choice to to drive a car and some people don't, there's a lot of, that's a spectrum. There's a, there's a lot of people, for example, who own a car but really can't afford it. There's a lot of subprime car loans out there. There's, so and, and also the idea that somebody is transit dependent, they have no other choice, usually not true either. Usually if the service gets bad enough, they will find something else to do. And And I think just the basic idea of a transit-dependent rider makes us take people for granted, just in the same way that a choice rider tends to make us focus on things like Wi-Fi and USB charging ports um, because we have this sort of vision in our head of somebody who's affluent and wants transit to be nice. Um, So I think that whole historical dynamic has very much shaped the discussion of transit. The other dynamic that is a huge part of transit in the United States is the dynamic of the civil rights movement and desegregation and resegregation and white flight. Um, It is true for basically any planning discussion we have in the United States has race buried in it somewhere. And in transit, it's a huge part of this. If you look at systems like Detroit or Atlanta, where you have metro areas that are segregated by race that are served by transit authorities, which are divided across the metro area. So you have suburban authorities and urban authorities. And that dynamic um, is underneath a lot of the transit conversations that we have. And that's one thing that makes U.S. transit different than European transit and Canadian transit. And I think often the fact that we're not willing to talk about the role that race plays in transit, the way it lurks underneath these discussions, is another thing that holds us back from making better decisions.
1: Um, yes, you're talking about, uh, it's true, a choice. Um, but I have to say, when I got to be in Paris for an extended time that, sure, I, I could have rented a car and drove around. But I, when I had that rail, there was no way. I was like, it was just a no-brainer. Um, yeah, and, I just and,
0: yeah, and, and and that's what the thing is, if you make good transit, it works for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 successful transit is not transit that's designed for one particular target audience. Successful transit is transit that's designed to do lots of things. Um we tend to talk a lot about home-to-work trips, but home-to-work trips are actually maybe a quarter of the trips that we make. Um there's a lot of people going to going to school on transit. There's a lot of people um, going to medical care. There's people going shopping. There's, um, you know, if you think about a transit network, if you want to be able to depend on transit and use transit as your main mode of um, of getting around, it doesn't just have to get you to work Monday through Friday. It has to be able to get you to church or to the grocery store on a Sunday morning. And if you're going to the grocery store on Sunday morning, there's also somebody else working at the grocery store on Sunday morning, which means transit needs to be there every day of the week, every time of day, because there's people working every day of the week, every time of the day. There's people trying to get somewhere every day of the week, every time of the day. Um, And these kind of single-purpose transit systems, things like New Jersey commuter rail, which is essentially designed to bring white collar suburban commuters who work nine to five jobs in and out of Manhattan. And the entire system is designed around that when there's actually a lot of other trips happening in those same corridors, but because of the schedules and the fares and the lack of connections to local transit networks, the commuter rail, even though it's in the right place to do it and has really good infrastructure can't serve those trips. Um, So good transit is multipurpose transit and good transit works well for everyone the the fact that that paris subway is fast and reliable and frequent is will draw people out of their cars like you said it simply makes transit a better option um but it is equally useful to somebody who doesn't have access to a car because their trips are a lot better as well
1: uh yeah uh, i was uh, i was just amazed uh everywhere i went in europe it was like this is this is so awesome. Then I came back to the United States. And I was like, I have to, I had to get used to driving my car again.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, the thing is in, the, in one of the things that's really clear to me and that I try to show in the book is there are places in every city in the United States where transit can absolutely be useful and competitive. Um, Every city has multiple major activity centers that can be connected together. Every city has pockets of density. Um, I mean, there's a tendency to, you know, look at New York and say, we're not like New York. And that's true. You can see the graph in the book of transit ridership, but nobody else is anything like New York. but. The New York metro area isn't all Queens and Brooklyn. There's plenty of suburban car-oriented places in that metro area like there are in every other one. And and Houston isn't all single-family houses on cul-de-sacs. Houston has dense neighborhoods as well. Houston has major activity centers. Um, so in every city, there are some places where transit can work really well. And the book actually has some examples of cities that are relatively small, that are doing some really good things. Richmond, Virginia has a really good BRT line. El Paso has a really good frequent transit network. Um, So there are smaller cities which are showing that if you find the right corridor, this can really work. Um, And and that's, you know, if you're in Houston and you go to Paris, you can't, Houston can't aspire to be Paris. It doesn't really make any (laughs) sense. Um, But the things that were great about riding transit in Paris, you can absolutely pull off in Houston. Um, And part of my perspective on this book is I live in Houston, Texas, which is known as a car-oriented city, and on a typical day, I do not get in a car. Um, And that's because I live in a place that has really good transit, because the land use and the density suits it, and because before my time on the board some people made some really good decisions about where to build a light rail line and what kind of service to operate on that line. So I get a train every six minutes all day during the day. That's incredibly good service that I just walk up to the station, don't look at a schedule, know that will come along and that train has traffic signal priority. So it's fast. If I'm going from downtown Houston to the Texas medical center. I'll be faster on the train than I will be driving as if you count in all the time it takes to get in and out of the parking garages with the car. Um, the train will have me to the door of that building more quickly. Um, and, and we can pull that kind of thing off in lots of places.
1: Oh, that's true. Um, I, we had our, uh, landscape architect conference in Los Angeles, uh, About two years ago, and um, I was staying in Santa Monica, and they had just opened up a rail line. Yep. And so I I did take an Uber to the hotel, but then after that, I could just jump on the rail. I went to the conference; it was packed. Yeah. They said they had already exceeded ridership, and they were getting ready to build more.
0: Yeah. No. It it, that's that's the Expo line, and it's a you know it, it follows all of the rules of what a good rail transit line does. It connects a series of major centers together. It connects downtown LA. It connects USC um, and Santa Monica at the end. And it goes through dense places and it connects well to the bus network. And yeah, the ridership has been great because it does exactly what you want transit to do.
1: Uh, Yeah. And and everybody was on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. and, and, And again, LA is a car oriented city. Um, but transit can be relevant in L.A. if you build it right.
1: Um, so in your book, we get into what are the good ideas for abroad? What do you think we can use in, um, uh, here in the United States that uh, that could work?
0: So I, I think there's a lot of things that we could learn from other countries. and And we don't do nearly enough looking around. And it's not even far abroad. Like I think one of the best – transit success stories in the world is vancouver british columbia um which is not very far away at all and if you're a north american urban planner you need to go to vancouver because there's very few places in the world that have done as well in terms of combining transit expansion and new development in the way vancouver has and it's utterly transformed the city Um, but you know some of the ideas i talk about it's remarkable to me whenever i go to Europe and and Germany and Switzerland in particular, how good the buses are. Um, There's the general attitude is that buses are essentially equal as a form of transit to things like light rail and streetcars and subways that they are not some lesser form of transportation. So, What you see in Munich, for example, is if you look at a streetcar stop and you look at a bus stop, they're absolutely identical in terms of the the amenities provided there. If you look at how they collect fares, they're absolutely identical. You can board a streetcar at any door. If you don't have a ticket, you can buy one at a ticket vending machine on board the streetcar. And the buses work exactly the same way. Um, If there is a reserved lane for a streetcar, the buses use that same lane. Um, Every streetcar stop has a name. Every bus stop has a name. So that the experience of riding the bus and the experience of riding the streetcar are basically the same experience, very deliberately so. Um, and then you come to the United States and you see city after city, which treats bus like it's a second class thing. When you look at a light rail station and you look at the bus stop that connects to that station and the station always has really good passenger information, and it always has a shelter, and it always has places to sit. And sometimes that bus stop is just like a sign with a pole, um, yeah. you know. And it's, it's amazing how many U.S. bus stops don't even tell you the direction the bus is going. It tells you the number of the bus, doesn't tell you if this is the bus going downtown or the bus going away from downtown. Um, and and so that's one thing we could really learn how they do fares. I mean, I have a map in the book of transit fares in Philadelphia. How much it costs to ride. From downtown Philadelphia um, to all these different places, and and color coded, and it varies how it varies which agency you are riding, it varies which mode you are riding, and it varies whether you transfer or not. And in Germany, the typical arrangement is that every large city has a coordinating agency, which makes sure there is one single fare system that covers the entire city. If you're traveling from point A to point B, the fare is the same regardless of who operates the bus or train you got on, regardless of whether it's a bus or train, regardless of whether you had to transfer or not. And that means fares become, rather than an impediment to riding transit, something that really enables you to use the whole network. And that's really an idea we should pick up on. Um, So there's a lot we can learn. There's a lot U.S. cities can learn from each other, and there's a lot U.S. cities can learn from the rest of the world.
1: So we have covered uh, quite a few of these basics of successful transit, and you're talking about density, you've got activity, walkability, connectivity, have we missed anything, Uh, frequency, travel time? Is there anything you'd like to uh, talk about with any any other good ideas for success?
0: I'd say one thing, uh, I think one thing that's important to realize with transit time, uh, with travel time, is your, your travel time is door to door, not bus stop to bus stop, but door to door. And so making transit faster is about making all of those pieces faster, which again means putting transit in the right places actually makes transit faster. Um, and, I, and I think that I often see a lot of discussions where people are fairly obsessed with speed, um, mm-hmm but that's not really what matters. What matters is that total travel time. And frequency is also one of the biggest parts of it, in that the time you spend waiting is part of your travel time as well. Um, so I think if, if we focus on transit as a door-to-door experience, we're gonna make better decisions. Um, the other thing I would really emphasize is actually the last point I make in the book, which is legibility. Um, how easy is it to understand a transit system? Um, And we're not doing very well on that generally. We're not providing very good um, passenger information. We're designing systems which are really hard to understand. The typical U.S. bus system is far more complicated than it needs to be. Um, And that works for somebody who makes the same exact trip at the same time every day. Um, But it doesn't work for people who are going to all sorts of different places, which includes a lot of transit riders. And it doesn't work for a newcomer trying to figure out the system. Um, And making transit easier to understand grows ridership. Um, I show the A-Line in the Twin Cities, which I think is one of the best examples. It's a bus route done really well um, with really good passenger information, a really clear, simple route. And they got an immediate ridership boost when they put that in. Um, so making transit easy to understand is, is as important as these other things.
1: Uh, it's true. You know, I was thinking back, um, I live here in Key Largo, Florida, and um, yeah, it's, the, there is a bus uh, from Miami-Dade and the Greyhound, and you have to really look for the stop, but it's actually a very small sign at the Starbucks at about mile marker or 99.
0: <laughs> yeah, there, there, there you go. There you go. Yeah, it's fascinating. When, um w- Wait. <laughs> When you just – like another thing is highway signs are the same everywhere in the United States and bus stop signs are completely different everywhere. Why is that?
1: I don't know. It's, it's like you can't find it. There's no map on that sign. I didn't even realize it was till I saw it stop and I looked like, oh, that is a sign.
0: <laughs> That's funny.
1: They actually kind of put it in a good place. It was right by a Starbucks. But on the other hand, there's a sign on the other side of the road. you got to cross – over the highway you got to find a crosswalk to get over to go maybe north
0: <laughs> yeah and and, and that crosswalks ought to be part of transit stops like that that is a basic part of what a transit stop ought to be
1: yeah uh, well will tell you what is your um what is your favorite city's transit in u.s
0: so i mean i'd say a first of all you know No city has as good a system as New York, and it's sad to see that the subway has definitely gotten less reliable over the last couple of years. Um, The bus system is far slower than it ought to be. Um, There's a lot of things New York needs to do, but just in terms of the coverage of that network and the number of people it carries, nobody else matches it. And obviously cities like Boston and Chicago are also up there with these great pre-World War II networks that they've also expanded over time and, and rebuilt. I think Chicago, for example, has done a much better job at New York at at keeping things in good condition. Um, But there are cities that stand out to me as cities that are really dramatically improving their transit. Um, Seattle right now, for example, is doing a lot of really good work, both with light rail and with bus and with how they connect together. Um, That is leading to a lot of growth in transit ridership. And they've been increasing jobs downtown, but actually reducing the number of people driving to downtown at the same time. Um, I think the Twin Cities have done a really nice job of building good projects, but also really thinking about how their bus network works. They have a well-defined frequent network of these are the routes, which we promise you are running frequently all day, that they do a really good job of showing on the map and branding as a separate thing. Um, And I'd say the biggest transit success story of the last half century is Washington, D.C., that if you think about how the DC metro changed that entire metropolitan area, how it turned what was a city with a fairly average transit system into a real transit city that you really can't imagine how DC would function without that subway. And that also transformed the entire region that created places like Silver Spring as these new employment and activity centers that grew up around these transit stations. And, really created sort of a multi-centric city. Um, It's hard to imagine what DC would be like if they hadn't built that system. And they did a really good job about getting it in the right places, about spending the extra money up front to get the stations where the stations needed to be. And if you look at the ridership, it's paid off.
1: Yes, it's true. Um, ironically, I do have cousins um, in the D.C. area. And um, when we went into the city, we just – we drove a short ways, parked, and we just got on the rail and just went around D.C.
0: Yeah. It, it's it's really easy. It works. And it has shaped the city around it like Good Transit does.
1: I did drive a little bit in D.C., and I was like, nope, I think I'm going to go park my car.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, th- this is – One of the things I talk about in the introduction is cars and cities don't actually work well together. Um, Cars are tremendously space inefficient. Um, One way I like to think about it is a typical office worker is assigned less space in their cubicle than their car is assigned in the parking garage.
1: Oh, that's true.
0: (laughs) Um, and, 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 And if you try making a city function with only cars, you end up taking a huge amount of space for roadways and a huge amount of space for parking. And the thing transit does far better than cars do is move lots of people in little space. Um, And that enables better cities. That enables um, cities with more economic activity and more things going on, enables cities that are more walkable and more, vibrant, and more livable. Um, every major economic center in the world has a transit system at the heart of it, and that's just because of that basic geometry, like Jarrett Walker would say. It's that basic space efficiency that transit offers. And that will always be true, that autonomous vehicles do not change that math because you still have a car with one person in it. Um, and if that's the, really why transit matters to me is because I love cities and good transit makes for good cities. Um, and we have a lot of opportunities to improve our cities by making transit better.
1: I, I was thinking too. Um, yeah, I've thought about that when I'm sitting in traffic, I'm like, this math is never going to work. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's just not, um, but not that I don't need my car sometimes. Cause I, I will say that sometimes I do need my car for some things. Um, but most of the time, I like to have different transportation tools. I don't need a hammer for everything either.
0: Yeah. And, and, and I will say, I mean, I don't, I don't think of riding transit as some like personal morality thing. I don't think I'm a better human being because I ride transit. I think for the most part, people make intelligent decisions about what kind of transportation they're going to use. And for the most part, people are driving because that's the best option available to them. Um, so transit isn't about a series of individual decisions. And I always, I've seen plenty of articles about, we need to make buses sexy or something along those lines. Like people are not, not riding buses because they aren't sexy. People are not, not people are not riding the bus because it doesn't serve their needs. Um, and that means that cities and elected officials and transit agencies, their task is to build transit that serves people's needs.
1: Yes, that's true. Um, well, you know, thank you so much for your time today. I I really appreciate it. we've we've taken up your your morning. Um, can you tell us what are you working on now?
0: <laughs> well, I'm still doing lots of lots of planning projects. I'm speaking lots of places. I'm in Chicago this morning to talk to the American Public Transit Agency CEOs Conference. Um, so. I'm I'm keeping busy doing lots of things, Um, but it's been, I'm really glad I wrote a book. It's been a really great experience to be out there talking to people about it, Um, watching on Twitter as it gets in people's hands and people enjoy reading it.
1: Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for your time. I I really appreciate it. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing you at a conference.
0: Sounds great. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you for joining us today. This has been Tricia Kaffer, New Books, in architecture with a special mini series in landscape architecture if you have any ideas for books you can also reach me through the florida asla website that's american society of landscape architects and contact me through our email form thank you and have a nice day